I will say while, while before, if, if we are in fact doing a parrot room time, um, when I was researching uh, Zero and um, looking you up specifically, and I have not been able to find this since, I swear, Doug, there was a Reddit post somewhere that, that described you as the cuddliest Marxist. Mm -hmm. And I wish Zero readers, please, find that help me find this because i think in your particular moment like that would be a great tinder tagline that is i should i should find that i am i think i may be one of the kindest I, I would i would i would stand behind that 100 all right all right uh all right i'm gonna put that at the beginning of this hello zero books readers and viewers it's me again douglas lane and in this video you'll see an interview with dan Mello, and in the parrot room discussion dan and i discuss left nihilism so uh, support us on patreon and hear all about how much despair we're feeling the death of god is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life where do we stand in the illusion it makes what kind of space are we invited into the material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, them. to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Zero Squared is the Zero Books Podcast. Daniel Mello is an attorney and social critic. He has written for Aereo Magazine and Medium, and his book, Borderlines, explores how power and profit are perpetuated by the divisions between migrant and citizen and the resulting dehumanization of both. Daniel, or Dan, welcome to the Zero Books channel. Um, I'm really glad to be uh, publishing your book at, uh, and that it's out there. I'm sorry I haven't gotten you on sooner, um, but I'm going to be entertained to walk through the book with you today um your book begins by describing an asylum seeker being granted asylum by a judge whose reluctance and final acquiescence to case law appears to torment him why is there such reluctance to grant asylum to people fleeing from the south to the north or as you say what is it that creates a system that dehumanizes people fleeing oppression yeah um so you know there's there's a political answer to that there's an ideological answer to that but you know at the heart of it all is of course the economic system the materialist conditions right that that drive all of those things right and so mm -hmm. in the instant case talking about um that you know that particular instance uh you know the folks that have studied immigration case law and specifically how judges come to some of their terminations have basically concluded, right, that it's like it's an underlying ideology for most judges that drives these things. And economic migrants, as they're termed, right, is, have often been shunted outside of the system, thrown out of the system, you know, have the vast majority of their cases denied simply because there's not really any reason for judges to latch on to um in terms of you know the under other underlying political motivations say like we're not pulling migrants away right now from russia which was you know a huge thing back in during the cold war mm. or from cuba you know as well um and so the vast majority of central american migrants um as was the case here um you know either barely squeak through because again in this in this case like there was pretty firm case law that established that no you have to give women fleeing domestic violence, um, asylum protection. Um, but the judge in open court said, um, I'm only doing this because I know that I'm going to get overturned if I don't. <laughs> yeah. So what is the ideology that creates judges like this? Is it, does it come from the law itself? Uh, uh is it a, the way the judges are appointed and the political process that, that cre puts people with that frame of reference in power or how does that come about in, you know, in practical terms? Yeah. Um, yes. And um, in, in both those cases, right. So this particular judge was formerly an ICE attorney. Um, so worked as the, you know, literally as opposing counsel in all of these cases. Right. Um, and 
um, many, many immigration judges are. Part of it also has to do with how immigration courts are constructed. They are a branch actually of the Department of Justice um, and it's an administrative court. So it's not you know, a, a federal court in any kind of other sense of the word. Um, they are you know, purely administrative in their function. And so, yeah, so they're all appointed you know, by the executive branch, um, all report to the attorney general, which is also a, a, another big problem is that the attorney general actually has the final say in what kinds of case law um, gets implemented, you know, what, and we've already seen some big whiplash from Trump to uh, Garland um, right now. So yeah, we have those, those pieces that, that have a really big impact on just the, the substance of, of who gets, um, who gets relief and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, and the ideology itself, uh, how does it work? What, what are the justifications that someone like that judge might use? What kind of arguments would they put forward, uh, to, to justify uh, their reluctance to let people in to their, their knee jerk, uh, you know, tendency to try to push as many people out uh, and, and out of, keep them out of the country as possible. I mean, is it is it about labor? I mean, would they say, would that judge sit down and say, oh, well, I want to protect American labor? Or would he say, well, these people are criminals? Or what, how would it? How would yeah, it um, so it certainly would. I don't, I've never heard a judge and I don't think we'd ever hear an immigration judge articulated in those terms, right? Of like, oh, I just, don't want these folks competing with American laborers, right? Or they're coming here to, to undercut American labor. Um, that is a conservative talking point in a lot of cases, but not for most judges, right? Mm -hmm. um, as it turns out, it, it actually just goes all the way back to the origins of refugee law itself uh, here in the US um, and how asylum law was built off of that, right? It was, um, taken from some of, you know, the post-World War II era changes that were happening around the globe and instead the u.s said well we're not going to quite embrace this like really open-ended version of refugee law and instead it became a kind of a weapon like a political tool right again to undermine power in you know then perceived communist so socialist countries particularly again soviet russia and mm -hmm. cuba um and so if you look at that same period right it's like when we were allowing the vast majority of cubans in um, under, you know, supposed humanitarian um, interests at literally at the same time, like Haiti was going through a brutal series of dictators um, and the vast majority of their asylum claims were denied. So hmm. all that to say, it's really just a question of a, then if you just keep walking it out from there, it's like you have to, if you understand asylum law, like any other piece of immigration legislation is ultimately restrictive rather than inclusive, then it just naturally follows that the people implementing that law as you move further and further down the line are going to have a more and more restrictive perspective. And that's not to say like there are some judges say out in California, something, you know, the more liberal places that do have higher grant rates, but even within certain areas of the country that are you know, considered liberal or left leaning, um, there's still wild disparities, right? You still have some judges who grant 90% and others who grant 5%, right? And there's no accountability. There's no, absolutely no attempts to try to rectify that because again, why bother? It's like the question is not actually about how how do people get in, but who do we keep out? I'm going to make a, a, a reference to a, a dated uh, television show, but on, do you ever see the television show Boston Legal? You know the oh. show? Okay. Boston Legal was a, a, a courtroom drama with James Spader and William Shatner. That's why I watched it. I'm a big enough nerd. I want to watch William Shatner. And every week, uh, the James Spader character would get somebody uh, off the hook uh, as, he put, as he stood up in court against a lawyer whose argument was always, the law says this, we have to follow the law, and you know, if you believe in the law, you'll find this person guilty. And James Bader would stand up and say, but look at her, your honor, you know, <laughs> how, <laughs> how do you feel about this? And um, I guess there's a tendency to think that the way the law should work is it's like calling balls and strikes. There are rules. It's, it's you know, it's abstract. It's rule based. It's not open. If the rules apply, 
they should apply equally to everyone. You, you, it, it couldn't be unless something is wrong with the law that Cubans would get in and Haitians wouldn't, right. unless there's something in the law. But it, it clearly that isn't the case. The law wasn't designed to let the Cubans in and not the Haitians, right? It was just James Spader was very good. At, <laughs> <laughs> is yeah. that basically it? Um, let me let me ask you a different. Go on to the next question. Um, your uh, your book in your book you point out that immigration law is a product of class relations. And it's a system that was designed from its inception to move labor around the world in order to serve the interests of capitalists and landowners. Can you relate some of that history? Uh, I mean, we kind of jumped in the middle just yeah. now, right? But how did it start? Yeah, absolutely. So it actually, you know, if you go all the way back, it's a it's a pre like a, a pre um, nation state question for the U.S. Right? We, you know, along with the importation of slaves, we also had. Um, large quantities of indentured servants coming mostly from Europe, right, over to the U.S. And indentured servitude, um, you know, of course, apart from the, the monetary aspect, functioned not the same as slavery, but in terms of how it was treated legally as a legal concept, both were considered articles of commerce, right? And so it was, it was a question of who had... Um, it raised some tensions almost immediately within the colonies and then subsequently in those those original states and this question of federalism right of who was going to be able to dictate how that economy worked and again it was a literal economy because at the time even for indentured servants there was quite a bit of money to be made shipping those folks across you know across the ocean mm -hmm. so you have this tension that starts starts to build not just between you know states and federal government and trying to decide can you uh you know cast out the indentured service that you don't want or if you know shipment of of indentured servants or slaves comes into your port and you say ah you can't land here you got to go next door right you know you start to have these tensions between the states between the government uh, the federal level and so the Supreme Court, you know, has to start working through this in some of its early decisions about how these people are going to be treated. And then, of course, at the same time, you also start to have racial, you know, the outgrowth of just racialized thinking throughout the world. And, you know, the U.S. was no exception to that. And so people, the indentured servant crowd, mostly white, started to loathe sort of their their legal position as being the same as enslaved people. And so you have that tension building at the same time, right? And so then all that, all that is to say is that at a, eventually it kind of reaches this head and to partially resolve this, and there was never a formal decision, it just kind of broke apart and got rolled up in a question of sovereignty, right? It's like the final, the final say actually does rest with the federal government as the sovereign power over both sets of bodies. And it's sort of, um, gets you out of the jam in terms of, you know, trying to have to resolve that legally as between indentured servant slaves because, you know, no big deal, right? Like now we just have control over anybody who's not part of the political body in the first instance. Mm -hmm. And so then from there, you know, you, you have a variety of different small things that consolidate power, say, with the federal government over immigration by and large in that that first early period, you know, even during Washington's time in the presidency. Um, and then from there, there's, you know, a number of big jumps that happen. Um, but, you know, to hone really in on the labor piece, um, one of them say is during, you know, uh, the um, World War II, where we have a pretty big gap in labor because we're sending all of our young men over, you know, overseas to fight. Um, and so at that point, we decide, okay, well, we've got to open up um, migration again in some capacity to get bodies in here to continue the war effort. And so that's when the Bracero program is created. Largely Mexican um, immigrants come, you know, en masse, cheap, very cheap labor that way. Um, and again, that's it's another, I use that example again, just to show that it's like this, there's this constant overlap of like racial xenophobia and also labor tensions all at the same time, right? Because during that period, you could also see how landowners um, and especially in the agricultural world uh, welcomed Mexican labor, just didn't necessarily want them to join, again, the political community, right? It's like, 
the idea and, and part of it was even sold to Congress in creating the Bracero program that the Mexican labor quote um, was, uh, I wanna say it was something like a, a pigeon that will go home to roost after he's mm -hmm. been here, like has no interest in staying. So we don't need to worry about that. We just need to use them and then they'll go home. They make that same argument today. Often enough, people will say the same thing now, right? That that people don't yeah, want to say, right? That it's mm -hmm. as as some some sort of weird qualifier for whether or not they they should have be here, and it you know it sort of falls into that that critique that Zizek has of a lot of Western thinking about immigration, right? That it's like we we tend to fight those battles purely on whether or not we should either a feel sorry for them um, or b you know just give them a break now and it'll all go away later. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's another big example of that sort of racialized tension combined with all, all things labor. Um, you know, there's other interesting instances uh, when I was on, this is revolution the other day, you know, Pascal really jumped on um, one of the early, the, the whole abolition, like the actual legal um, ban on the importation of slaves uh, facially seems like, oh, we were just, you know, trying to stop um, this horrible, horrible trade. And it's like, actually, in reality, if you look at it, it was because landowners specifically in the South were very, very afraid that we were going to launch another like Haitian revolution, but in the South. Um, so it was actually to prevent any of that attitude making it into the country and potentially starting an internal revolution. Basically, if you had too many slaves, they might organize. Yeah, exactly. Specifically, like as the Haitians had done and, mm -hmm. and you know, end up mm -hmm. basically, you know, killing off most of their white owners and taking over the South. Anyway, um, from there, then, you know, you can jump forward again to um, looking at some of the criminalization aspects that come. So, you know, you have all these braceros here at some point the war efforts done so there's operation wetback comes into play where we start moving um all these people back out of the country because the the overall labor need has decreased um and you know again small pieces here and there that that sort of get tailored there's a big jump in the reagan era uh in terms of immigration legislation um, where, you know, the tension had sort of built in terms of the quantity of undocumented people. And so there seemed to be some some level of necessary political change that had to happen in order to smooth things over. But even that package, right, like that Reagan often gets celebrated for this whole amnesty thing, um, came with, a you know, a big budget for increasing uh, enforcement at the border specifically. Um, you know, and then a little bit later on, Clinton signs the Illegal Immigration Reform Act, which is probably the single most damaging piece even today for most migrants in terms of their legal status and navigating that whole world made all kinds of things pretty complicated for them. But ultimately, right, it's like we, to, to sort of sum most of that up into a single thought is just that it's like, we tend to think of most immigration law and probably law in general, right? Is this like incremental shift as either a good one or a bad one? Um, and that the complexity is really just a, a bug, right? But it's actually a feature. The fact that there are so many um, overlapping things that can ultimately break down a migrant's ability to remain where they are um, is a feature of the system. And to give you know a, a more modern example, if you think about how the H-1B system works, which is bringing skilled workers over from abroad, while there are supposedly protections in place to make sure that they're paid the same wage so that you don't get any of that kind of undercutting of, of wages here in the US, as it turns out, right, like employers get to actually dictate to the Department of Labor in most instances what the prevailing wage is. Um, so they usually end up underpaying, severely underpaying, you know, the people that they bring from abroad. Um, yeah. And then at the end of all of that, no matter how long that person's been working for them and living here in the U.S., the employer has zero responsibility to sponsor them for any kind of permanent resident. And in some mm -hmm. cases, some of the biggest employers do the least amount of sponsorship for any kind of permanent status. The person just gets shipped off and sent home. Mm -hmm. 
Um, well, you define I mean, it, it like I tend to think that there is a difference between an immigrant and someone who's like an expatriate or someone who, who uh, is a professional and, and decides to leave their country of origin mm-hmm. and, and live somewhere else. Is that defined in law? What is an immigrant exactly? Yeah. Um, so the the law, in, in terms of like the examples you gave, like the law only really makes distinctions um, between the types of statuses that you can hold. And there is an immigrant versus a non-immigrant status. Um, however, in terms of specifically, and I think that this is why I end up falling and sort of defining everyone who is not a U.S. citizen as an immigrant um, mm. is because anyone outside of the, the protections of, of U.S. citizenship is subject to the state's power to remove them from the country. Um, and so the INA, the, the Immigration Nationality Act, is kind of circular in its reasoning that way where it defines um, anyone who's not an immigrant as a citizen and anyone who's not a citizen as an immigrant. Right. Um, okay, so that's simple. Uh, the, the, my next question would be, if you're in the process of naturalizing and becoming a citizen, do you have protections while you're in that process? Uh, do you start to get citizenship rights at the beginning of the of the process or 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 no? It's just sort of a, you know, just like I'm asking for a fact. Do you know? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, there's sort of like three big tiers of of protections if you know uh, within the framework so it's like even undocumented people have certain basic constitutional rights you know even yeah. if they get charged with a crime they still have the right to an attorney that kind of thing right mm-hmm. if you go up to the next step where someone's a permanent resident here in the US they have a few more rights right like in some cases they can even get uh, some limited public benefits they can't vote um, you know most most serious crimes would strip them of that status and allow them to be removed again by the state um so there are some protections in that you know sort of middle zone of of permanent residence but it is really not until you reach citizenship status that you have the vast majority protections that you know a natural born citizen would have but even then and there's something i talk about towards the end of the book right it's like even then there is still a window at which the state could take away and has taken away some people's citizenship and actually remove them, right? It's like you're never, even as a naturalized citizen, you're never completely out from under that power. Oh, what about if you're born, you know, natural born citizen? Can you, you can still have your citizenship taken, can't you? Or it's, I, at this point, it seems to be a fairly settled thing in the Supreme Court. There was a time actually um, before, I want to say this was the pre, pre-World pre War II, maybe up even through the 60s yet, where um, women specifically were being stripped of citizenship if they married somebody, even natural born citizen women were being stripped of citizenship if they married a migrant, right? So there was this kind of aggressive sort of xenophobic backlash during that mm. period where, yeah, women were literally being stripped. Um, and then I want to say in the, it, it was around the 70s, um, I'm not great with dates on on court decisions that way. The Supreme Court sort of said, nah, I really don't think we can, we can, the state quite has that ability. And they sort of put a kibosh on that. Um, and frankly, it just hasn't come up since then because they've had so many other opportunities to, to target migrants. So this notion of a citizen and the, and sovereignty, national sovereignty, kind of go together, right? Um, and uh, I'm I'm wondering, like, what is the uh, how does this how does national sovereignty support the needs of capital? Why why is it um, useful for the capitalist system to be divided up into nations and to to have the citizen and non citizen status and I mean, actually, I, I'm really curious, wouldn't it be much easier if there were no citizens? Everyone was treated like an, like an immigrant, you know, nobody had. But uh, how, do, how do you think uh, it works? Uh, you know, for me, I sort of follow Luxembourg's line of thinking on this, that it's like the nation, you know, it's 
it's not a teleological aim, right? Like it, we actually have to back up and look at it. It's like, how did the nation state emerge, right? And in this case, like it emerged to help sort of foster the growth and development of capital within its territorial bounds, right? Um, and so then it became necessary at that point to start breaking down some of the prior eras, you know, arbitrary divisions, whether that was along nobility lines, bloodlines, um, or just other kinds of statuses, and instead allow people to think of themselves as part of a collective, regardless of, of some of their background. And it's not to say that that just happened overnight or anything, um, but mm -hmm. you know, part of the alienation of people from their land and then ultimately also freeing them up to labor for capital required a shift in how they perceived themselves. Um, and one of the authors that I, you know, quote both in talking about this concept of of nationhood and citizenship, and also on the question of race and how that also came out of capitalism, right, is I, I'm going to mess up his name, Kenan Kenan Malik or Malik, um, who sort of sees actually that moment of people becoming part of part of a citizenry as also a divisory moment in where things like race really get cemented into the way we think about ourselves mm -hmm. um, because you cannot be at the same time like uh, a holder to the universal rights of man without some sort of power to help protect the universal rights of man. So at the very moment where um, you say we're all part of this same collective project, we needed to look somewhere to have power to protect those mm -hmm. rights. And um, why did Luxembourg say that the nation was useful for the concentration and accumulation of capital? Was it just basically about land at the in the beginning and seizing land and, and closing spaces? Or she actually uses the word like fatherland, I think, at least in the mm -hmm. translation, right? Of like developing this idea of a fatherland, but it you know ultimately is like a, a question of yeah policing the bodies both within the territory but then also for those individual capitalists right to protect themselves against the interest of capital that's developing outside of those territorial bounds and outside of their influence and at the same time right like starting this concept up of of colonialism and imperialism where we can even further develop the power of capital that we have right here if we start breaking into new ground, new territory, right? So for her, it was this both and kind of thing of like, we need it to foster capital in, inside the territorial bounds, but then also to be able to develop it further by going elsewhere. Right. Um, so let's see. Why is it though? So why is it so difficult to, uh, to get a, some sort of body together to impose a set of human rights that applies to just everyone. Uh, and, and so that, um, I mean, obviously, I mean, there's obvious answers about the difference in economic uh, security in different parts of the world. So imposing it, if you're uh, in, in Central America, your human rights are going to be much uh, uh, more difficult to protect um, because of the demands of the economy and, and the, the underdevelopment of the region, maybe. But you would think that in that it might not be that difficult for some sort of body to impose standards of human rights for everyone, for immigrants in the developed world, where there was enough wealth to secure those rights for everyone who's there. Um, so what, what pushes against that? I mean, I'm sort of obvious, but I want you to tell, tell me anyway. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, for starters, it's like, obviously, like, even if we attempted that now with, say, just our portion of the Western Hemisphere, right, and just said Central America, like the European Union, right, was was in kind of in a way an attempt at that or even the UN, right? But it's like, once again, those rights don't carry, and this is uh, our Hannah Arendtian point, right? It's like those rights don't carry any meaning whatsoever unless there's some sort of force to back them. And so to try to collectivize that in any meaningful way would actually require a radical sort of rethinking of, of what it means to be a part of something and ultimately then how that power is constructed in the first place. Um, and, you know, I'm under no illusions, right? That it's like, even the question, of, 
for me, the question of open borders actually isn't that hard to conceive of, right? Like in some ways we already see this, like here in the United States, you can travel to Virginia, I can go down to South Carolina, you can, you know, go over to California. Those are all borders technically, but it's like you can move freely about, right? That's that's a relatively easy concept. It's actually what comes after that, right? That is really hard of conceiving of a world without nation states and, and also without some sort of super you know, natural one kind of state power, you know, that that would allow this to happen that would not also fall prey to the exact same problems we have right now. What is your stance on open borders and the and the movement for um, yeah, for open borders and immigrant rights by championing open borders? And I mean, I, yeah, no, a hundred percent for them. Um, and, and I, I think they're a must, um, but the, the challenge, and it's a bit of a paradoxical one is that it's like, I think in order for us to at least meaningfully accomplish that, right. Because I, I do think that the current construct is fundamentally unjustifiable at its root. Um, but even if we were able to conceive of that, it's like organizing that is going to be incredibly difficult for all, all the reasons we just talked about, right. Is that, the state has has such a powerful ability to restrict, to keep out. Um, and so in order to start organizing these people, right, we need some foothold, some kind of legal protection for them. And where is that gonna come from but the state? So it's like you're asking um, sort of the taskmaster to give you enough of a break to organize against the taskmaster sort of thing. And so it, it it presents a, a very big problem. And I think part of the reason why we just haven't made any real gains in this area um, for a very long time is because we've sort of run up against a hard wall and of, of trying to organize this group internationally. And then at the same time, so for me, that also means that it has to be, uh, we have to somehow overcome capitalism at the same time, um, because I don't think that uh, we're going to do that without some sort of international context, but then you're back where you started, where it's like, okay, but how do we organize an international movement to do that? Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the trouble with open borders is if you imagine that you could actually have the political power to implement it, you get rid of the borders and you give anyone who comes into the country for what you know, economic reasons or whatever, the same citizenship rights, which would include, let's just go pie in the sky here access to universal health care or you know socialized medicine uh free education uh, a living wage well you're going to have a rush of people coming into the country to get the, those jobs um you're going to have competition between native and immigrant workers and you're going to have profits decline um and high unemployment and you know so because there just won't be enough jobs for the rush of people that comes in just theoretically. So then some other mechanism rather than immigration law would come in to distinguish between the right. haves and the haves nots. And, you know, and you probably see after a while as the country starts to get, let's say crime ridden and, and uh, dysfunctional, uh, an exodus, uh, you know, yeah. it's just right. I mean, so like, obviously the, the, the conditions are not just about the laws and uh, certainly not just about like the attitudes that people have yeah. about immigrants. Um, so, but so then the question is like, how do we struggle for immigrant rights and, and uh, without pr with, with the aim of going beyond just that struggle um, and, and what do you, how how do you see that happening in in the in the world of activist activism around immigration right now? Yeah, I mean, it, for me at least, that is the question, right? Is like, how do we accomplish this against capitalism but within capitalism? And it's you know, it it's that cliche line of like, it's it really is easier to think of the end of the world before we thought of how this is going to end exactly. Yeah. Um, and so you know, the only middle ground that I've come up with is like you know, it's that same old revolution versus incrementalism approach, right? It's like, on the one hand, it's like, should we really, um, you know, forget about all of these people trapped in this horrifying system and their, their, um, their immediate material problems 
in favor of trying to accelerate some sort of revolutionary change or conversely we we can and we have and we will continue to just grind through as much as we can pulling people out of the machine that is an endless machine and that will have an endless amount of human bodies to to run through right mm -hmm. um and so for me it's like there's an attempt <laughs> right to, you know some meaningful way of like okay if we can at least build in some sort of legal protective footholds you know gain some basic ground from the state um on those things enough to where we could start building political power um that might might kickstart things right but i also think that it's like we also have to try to figure out a way to develop solidarity across working classes internally because i don't think that this is going to happen absent you know buy-in from you know whether we're talking about you know just your average white you know west virginian working class person or uh you know your black new yorker or wherever right we if we can't start building that solidarity as well for all the reasons you just said right the the mere fact of an of an open border within the bounds of capitalism not going to have a great outcome i don't think right the um the other way to think about the problem is like if you think about let's say we're for open borders we're like championing that i think it's worth championing but then okay so uh throw in something else like prison abolition like it would be because the criminal justice system and the and the rate of incarceration is obscene it's inhumane uh but uh, you know in order to get to a, a place where you have uh, the abolition of prisons, you know, I think activists might be tempted to start and for good reasons with just making sure that every uh, person who's suspected of crime and put into the criminal justice system, it gets the full protection of their right, gets their, you know, gets everything they have the mm -hmm. right to and maybe expanding the rights, uh, and, you know, and, but, and also you might, you know, be, uh inclined to work with defense attorneys and you know and, and and public defense attorneys and and uh try to get more funding for them but all of that is just like you're still you're nowhere near prison abolition at that point yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? not even in the ballpark right and it's like right. you know we could knock down all of the ice detention centers nationwide we could get rid of every single last um last one of them free every single migrant that's in detention right now that wouldn't address the underlying you know legal problems of the state's ability to remove them and then let's say that we you know on mass you know reagan style amnesty just started granting people um status into the country it's like once again you're back where you started of like well we don't have resources to sustain nowhere no any one place does right have resources to sustain an infinite influx of human beings um that's not to say that there's not those resources across the broad spectrum of capitalism i think something to point out but at that point you might as well be asking the the owners to hand over the means of production yeah exactly um right um uh, so let, let's let's talk about that for a little. Well, actually, I want to go to a different question, which is um, uh, the, now that we're now we're what we're talking about now is organizing the working class for their own power rather than simply trying to do uh, something like open borders or pass laws that will reform this or that aspect of capital uh, or uh, you know of the state law and and the, the meaning that like you know like the state of oregon but the nation states right. and their laws um so in 2012 i interviewed jefferson cowie about his book staying staying alive and it was a book about the working class in the 70s and how the workers the white workers particularly native white workers took on a conservative character in that decade and how he at that point in 2012 he was sort of um, uh, far leftist for suggesting that what we needed to return to was working class politics. I mean, it, it you know, it was the Obama era and and neoliberalism was a bit was less obviously at its end. And but at the end of the interview, he claimed that the best way for a radical working class movement to emerge would be for labor activists to focus on organizing immigrant labor. 
Um, do you think that that's true? I mean, I, I think that would certainly go a long way. Um, I think once again, the problem is just that it's like attempts at organizing migrant labor are going to run up pretty hard against the fact that it's like, as long as the state has the ability and the right um, under the law to remove those people, it's going to be very, very hard to organize them. And ultimately it doesn't, you know, it doesn't tackle some of the already entrenched, like more racist and xenophobic elements um, that have been sort of baked into part of capitalist ideology at this point. Um, right. And so uh, again, it's just like, I, I don't have good answers for those things just because I don't know that there are good answers right now. And I guess if I, you know, to be Hegelian about it, if, if I could truly envision the solution to this, it would actually already be at work. Um, well, you have some vision of it, and I, we'll get to that in just a minute. But, but um, I, what I said to him at the time was, well, the problem with focusing labor organizing around immigrant labor, you know, first or predominantly, is that then you're you're, and especially if you're if the effort you're making is to develop a working class culture in the United States, a broad working class culture and a broad working class movement. And you start with immigrant labor, you don't have much of a pitch to native workers, you know, it, yeah. because the more rights immigrant labor has, uh, the and the, and the, the may, maybe the more open the borders are. There is some evidence that some of the time, anyway, not in every case, they really are competing for, uh, you know, against the native workers, and they do in certain contexts bring down the overall wages and or undermine uh they can undermine unions and, and so on and it isn't just a natural fact that there's going to be solidarity right but with the immigrant worker and you know and the class of people who are activists you know, might be operating on the level of human sympathy or empathy or uh, ideal aim but their self-interest is not uh, you know, they're not working against their self-interest when they do that. Cause actually, and the other thing about it is the longer the problem persists and the more, the more activists are needed. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> so it, you know, doing things that don't quite solve the problem isn't against the activist's interest. Um, so uh, I, I said to him, wouldn't it make more sense to start with, a workers movement that was universal in character that's included the uh, needs of the native working classes. And then in addition saw or, and pushed for an international struggle for uh, the rising up of, of the standards of living, not just for immigrants, but in other nations, like in the South uh, international movement and in, uh, and organizations that are struggling both the United States and in this and in this uh, in Central America or South America um, so that there was uh, uh, this, a sense that as everyone's power increased everyone's interests were being served but and he's like yeah I guess so but like <laughs> where are we going to get okay. that from interesting <laughs> um, yeah I mean, to, to, to kind of exemplify something you're saying, right, it's like in the book, I talk a little bit about how it's like it has been studied, right? Like migrant farm workers do help bring down wages. Um, and, you know, you have reactionary and conservative think tanks pointing that out and using that then as a tool, you know, to beat down. It's like we shouldn't we should be bringing fewer and fewer of them because look at what they're doing to American jobs, right? And that'll always be a great talking point to a native versus a, a use that term loosely, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a citizen versus a migrant worker. It's like, look what you know, it's, it's been done with, with, you know, black people post-slavery. It's like, look at what this, per, this outsider is doing to your standard of living. Um, and so, you know, if you just use the numbers, yeah, sure, it, it makes for a great talking point that way. Um, and I think you're right in suggesting that it's like, if the only concern, right, rather than turning that around and saying, well, hang on a minute, like who's benefiting from the fact that that labor is cheaper than this labor? And it's like, ah, right. okay. So it's like, if, 
if we're not constantly reflecting those arguments back on capitalism, right, back on on the ownership and and how the means of production is working right now, or specifically not working for not just the migrants, but also for, you know, the 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 white or the native working class, we are going to keep losing that fight over and over and over again, because yeah, it's not going to be enough, you know, to just say like from a, a really pure like standpoint epistemology identity politics kind of stance of just saying like the only thing that matters is that we get migrant workers better off it's like we can have both worlds right and i, I think that for me at least i try to reject any kind of you know dichotomy where it's like it's only them or only us it's like no i really do think that if we start to work to build solidarity across those lines that everybody could theoretically win so I'm going to ask you about the your vision for for the process of overcoming capitalist relations because you talk about it towards the end of your book. You just describe it as um, a, 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 you call for a democratic reordering of society. Um, and how do you see that process beginning? Do you do you feel like uh, championing politicians like Bernie Sanders and pushing for the kind of left progressive wing of the democratic party is a step in that direction or do you feel like we need new parties or or is it uh, something that democratic participation in the workplace is the where to start what is the democratic reordering of of uh, society i mean for me you know i it's like wow i think bernie sanders certainly would have been a jump you know I have, you know, miles ahead of, of anything that we have now or have had for quite some time. It's like at the same time, like it's not like he was jumping up and down to, you know, champion some of those ideas either. And I think, uh, you know, maybe even maybe it was Nagel that pointed out in her now, you know, renounced article, well, not renounced, infamous article um, that it's like many he, renounced it, many renounced yeah, it, and, renounced it, it. And, and it didn't take very much time for it to be <laughs> renounced. Um, I, I feel like the proper response to Nagel's article, which was, I think, in American Affairs, if I'm remembering correctly, right, would have been yeah. to to criticize it, you know, to because yeah. there were lots of problems in the she, she cherry picked quotes from Marx. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. 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 Um, it's poorly written. I mean, it's yeah. like, oh, <laughs> well, oh, and line by line, it might not have been bad prose, but it was not yeah. a, not well argued. Um, uh, but, you know, I have two minds about Nagel because I like her kill, book, Kill All Normies. Sure. and haven't loved her trajectory since then. Yeah. <laughs> it's been anyhow. kind of weird. And I'd love to hear somebody break down like exactly how we got here for her. But anyway, that's that's yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, no, I you know, it's like to couch it even in terms of like the immediate moment. Right. Like Biden is obviously in the same way that Obama was no great friend of migrants, right? Like I have a load of critiques for Biden and nevertheless, right? Like there are some material changes that he's brought back that have meant, have had very significant impacts on, on people's lives. Um, and I don't want to discount that. I'm not celebrating him for that because, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think that the system should be there in the first place. Um, but all that to say, it's like, I, I, for me, it's, it's a two pronged approach of like, yes, let's try to push, state power is far back away from these people so that simultaneously we can start to work on a more democratic idea within the working class right and i use uh reiner forrest who's uh the current i don't know what what generation now we're on of the the frankfurt school but you know he's developed this idea right of the the right to justification right it's like that that this actually is what underlies all other demands for rights is that we have to start thinking about internally as between people as in a political moment, how we justify the choices that are made politically to each other and how that where we go from there with that right. And of course, for obvious reasons, like both capitalism and everything else that's flowed from it in terms of, of how migrants are treated is not justifiable if you look at it through those lens. But that doesn't give us anything to work off of in terms of where to launch politics from. We are trapped in that moment that way of like we have to launch something from somewhere. So on the one hand, developing legal footholds, you know, even as Marx recognized that it's like narrowing the um, workday down to eight hours was not an insignificant achievement. Right. Even though that's still 
the fact that it fits within a bourgeoisie worldview without, you know, we still have it. It's right. Is proof that it's like right. it's not a revolutionary act, um, but it is nevertheless a, a significant political one, which opens up the possibility of bigger political movements. Right. Yeah. And that's it. We got to, we start, we, but I think we need to start thinking and, and debating uh, uh, the, uh, a strategic vision and, and saying, okay, the eight hour workday, why is that an, a step towards socialism? as well as just why is that good for workers it's got to be you you want to do both yeah and um i think you can you know obviously the more time a worker has to him or herself uh the the more time that the worker has to develop his or her own uh identity and her his or her own organizations and you know exactly more, yeah so that's that's kind of an obvious one um and i i think that you know, uh, a universe, a, a, a living wage laws that then would be applied to everyone, uh, all workers. Like yeah. if you had a job, you got a living wage. Um, that would be clearly uh, advantageous for work for the working class. Um, so, but all of it would be temporary. Like a living wage today won't be a living wage tomorrow. And we'll be back. Yeah, we'll be back in that political struggle again. And it's like, and that way, you know, you, it's like, there's always going to be problems, right? Right. We, even they just have to be anticipated. Exactly. Just, you, have, like, you have to try to anticipate them. One of the things that really struck me at, during the, the, at the end of this pandemic, or fucking over, okay? <laughs> it's over. The pandemic is over. I don't care about the Delta that, variant. That said it. We're done, folks. Okay. You're um, stepping in for Robinson, right? So now yeah. you, you, you <laughs> make those commands. It's like, I, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, you're fired. Um, so, so, so uh, um, uh, no, so, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the, at the end of the pandemic, um, you know, there had been a struggle in the, within the U.S. Congress and the Democratic Party for a $15 uh, dollar an hour minimum wage. And it didn't take, we couldn't get it done politically, but now like almost all work, all the jobs are at that rate or higher because of the labor market. So it's like, you know, what, what we aim for politically may not be nearly as high, uh, you know, or as ambitious as we, as we think. Exactly. And the, and the conditions change all the time. Um, all right. Well, is there anything I didn't ask you that you wish that I had? <laughs> Not really. I will say while while before if, if we are in fact doing a parent room time, um, when I was researching uh, Zero and um, looking you up specifically, and I have not been able to find this since. I swear, Doug, there was a Reddit post somewhere that that described you as the cuddliest Marxist, mm -hmm. and I wish Zero readers, please find help me find this because I think <laughs> in your particular moment, like that would be a great tinder tagline that is the, i should i should find that i am i think i may be one of the kindest I, I would i would i would stand behind that 100 all right all right uh all right i'm gonna put that at the beginning of this